from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. We'll be down in verse 25 in just a moment. One of the things that uh, pastors do when we study Scripture to, to preach is we always kind of look at where we're where we're preaching and, and, and go out, right? We, I, I guess a better way to put it would be we like to try to outline the books. You know, as we preach through John, try to outline the book of John and, and all that that entails, you know. And as you're making an outline, you would give a title to the outline. So the, the title for John would be Life in Jesus, right? And you go to John uh, chapter 20, verse 30 through 31 to get that. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in Him, right? If we're making an outline, that's the title of our outline. Now, one thing about John is John divides really easily, if you remember your outlines, into a Roman numeral 1 and a Roman numeral 2, right? Roman numeral 1 is basically chapters 1 through 12, and it's called the Book of Signs, right? You hit book. Uh, you hit chapter thirteen, and chapter thirteen through twenty-one is the book of glory. And I always have to remind people, and I, I just you probably have heard me say this, and as a reminder, and you know it, from John thirteen all the way to the end, you cover one week, right? John one through twelve, three years. John thirteen through twenty-one, one week. After that, it gets a little bit confusing how you want to outline John, and one of the reasons is John as I have said before, and as I think you're seeing now, uses reoccurring themes over and over and over and over through the gospel. And one of the themes that John uses over and over throughout his gospel is feast or festivals, Jewish feast and Jewish festivals. You go to John chapter 5, verse 1, and it says there was a feast of the Jews. You go to John chapter 6, verse 4, he, he places us, and, and remember John 6 is, I am the bread of life. He places that I am statement in the context of the Passover feast. Well, you come to John chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that we're at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. They are one and the same. And it's important that we see that, because it helps us interpret what is happening in the chapter. And in fact, John chapter 7 all the way through verse 9 takes place against the backdrop of the Feast of Booths. And it's a really important feast. It's one of the three, as I said last week, of the pilgrimage feast where you are called to go to Jerusalem. And so everything that's going to happen is within that background. Now, the Feast of Booths specifically, and while every festival, right, the Passover, uh, uh, Pentecost, all, all the festivals, if you kind of had an overarching theme, was about the goodness and the grace of God towards His people. I mean, all of them did that. But each one kind of focused on a different aspect of God's character that fell underneath that umbrella. When you come to the Feast of Booths, the main emphasis is God's provision and protection while they were in the wilderness. Right? Remember, they come out of Egypt. They're wandering around through the desert. And God takes care of them 
each and every day. And so they're called to come back to Jerusalem for this feast to remind themselves of what God did in the Exodus. All right, all that makes sense? So let's go to verse 25 and read down to verse 52. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, some said, is this the Christ come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So this morning, as we look at those verses, just three thoughts to kind of guide our conversation this morning. And the first one is the confusion about Jesus. Confusion about Jesus. When you read those first few verses, they're just confused. right? They're confused, first of all, about His publicity. right? Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching. And when he would be in the temple teaching, remember, he'd be teaching over here and another rabbi over here and over here a rabbi. It's going to be really loud. It's going to be uh, just kind of chaotic. 
people, you know, going, oh, I like this rabbi best. I'm going to go hear him, but then going, no, no, all right, what's this rabbi have to say? And here is Jesus in, in the middle of all of this. He's teaching too, and the people are really confused because they're going, um, y'all want to kill him, and he's right there in the temple teaching. Here he is. Why don't you come get him? Why don't you take him out and, and kill him? All right, because you said that you want to. And so they're, they're trying to, to reconcile this in their minds. Why aren't they killing them? And they come up with this idea which shows, again, their confusion. Well, maybe the authorities know that he is and the authorities won't tell us. So that, that's, they can't understand why Jesus is not being arrested. And so the only theory that they can come is, he must really be the Christ. The authorities already know. And therefore, uh, they're, they're not going to come and they're not going to arrest him, which I don't really understand. <laughs> I don't know that that would have been the first place that I went. But they they have no clue. They can't understand how he is publicly teaching. They're also confused about where he came from. All right, the crowd is discussing this. Right? Where where does he come from? We we, we don't know. And, and this is really important. Right? This is important for the crowd to get correct. And so they're looking at Jesus going, he's doing all these signs, he's this miracle worker, but he came from Nazareth of Galilee. And for whatever reason, a, a theory had developed that when the Messiah, when the Christ arises, that he's just going to show up out of nowhere. Now, we know Scripture ha- has, has spoken differently. Scripture said exactly where the Messiah is, is, is going to be born. But they're confused. He, he's from Nazareth, so surely he's not really the Messiah. Now, this confusion over birth, right? We we kind of understand that. I'm, I'm going to pick on Ben for just a minute. You, you know, Ben was born in Maine, lived a whole four months of his life there in Maine. <laughs> but for the longest time after we moved back and we asked him where he was from, he would say from Maine. Now, if you asked anybody in Maine where he was from, they would never say that he was from Maine. We, we didn't, Atlanta and I didn't have the pedigree to be Mainers for Ben to be a Mainer, right? Ben just happened to be born to two people who lived in Maine, <laughs> right? So for us, though, it doesn't really matter. And that's always a good question. Me and Greg met some people at the fair last week and, and said, where are you from? And we just wanted to know where they drove in from to get to the fair. And they go, well, we're from Virginia, but we moved down here 40 years ago. And you're going... <laughs> Are you still from Virginia? You, you know, right? For us, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's not a big deal. It, it kind of tells you how we identify ourselves to a great extent. But for the Messiah, it was important. He had to come from Bethlehem. And the religious authorities know this. If you look down in verse 42, they, they, they make it clear. Right? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Earlier, he's just going to mysteriously apply, but here at least some in the crowd said, no, 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 he's, he's got to come from Bethlehem, but this Jesus is from Nazareth. Well, I think we've just demonstrated that you can be from somewhere else and yet have been born in a different location. But they're, they're confused about it. But the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. It's important. So Jesus in the midst, he, he proclaims that literally means cried out. It's the same word used in verse 37. He's going to throw, he's, he's going to make them more confused, right? He says, you know me and you know where I come from. 
Now, we just read that, and we're just flowing along with the context of the conversation. Where is he from? You know where I'm from. What would they say? Oh, you're from Nazareth. What does Jesus mean? When Jesus says, you know where I come from, it's not a statement of saying, you know where I was born. It's a statement where he is indicting them. right? Because he's told them repeatedly where he has come from. And in the context of John, where has Jesus come from? He's come from above. He's come from the Father. He has come from heaven. So Jesus looks at him and says, and it's really ironic when he says this, you know me and you know where I come from? What's he saying? If you know me and you know where I come from, then you would believe me and believe what I teach. But you don't. You don't know me because you don't know the one who sent me. You don't know that I've come down from the Father on a divine mission. And in their rejection of that, they're rejecting Jesus. And he says, yeah, you say that you know me, but I've come from him. And he sent me. So here you have all these people, right? You have the priest, the chief, uh, the the priest, the Pharisees, the crowd, all claiming that they know God, and yet Jesus says, "You don't. Otherwise, you would know from where I came." And if that's not enough, he says, "All right, you think it's confusing about where I came? Wait till you see where I'm going." <laughs> If you want to really be confused, so he, he looks at them and says, I'm only going to be with you a little longer, and, and, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Again, pointing back to his divine origins, his divine mission. And where I'm going, you, you won't be able to find me. And again, the only thing that they can come up with, and this isn't a this is kind of a, a slap at Jesus and a slap at the Gentiles and, and the Greeks, it's like. Well, you're not going to stay in Jerusalem. The only place that we wouldn't be able to find you is you go live with those heathen Gentiles and heathen Greeks because we're too righteous. We know too much about God to go look for you there because we wouldn't be caught dead among the Greeks and the Gentiles. So apparently the only place that you're going is to the heathens. But again, that's not right. John is foreshadowing Jesus is pointing forward to the crucifixion and his resurrection which is then followed by his ascension back to heaven back to the right hand of the father so Jesus is teaching this in the courtyard of the temple and there's a whole bunch of grumbling remember we talked about that last week a whole bunch of grumbling and and over this and confusion teaching this in the middle of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which points back to remind people of the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. You can see the parallels, can't you? Right? The, the, the people back then were just as confused and grumbled about God just as much as the people in the temple that Jesus is speaking to did as well. God is leading them out of Egypt you're leading us into the desert. Was it not good enough for us to die in Egypt? You don't care about us. What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. Why are we going this way? That's not the road. Let's go that way. Grumbling, confusion, which leads to them not believing. And here Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the people are confused. 
The people are grumbling and they don't believe. Salvation is standing right before them and they can't see it. Even though, again, go back to the Exodus where God leads them. The pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. He leads them. They can see with their eyes, yet they're still grumbling in their disbelief. They're just they're confused about Jesus. They can't see the salvation that He is offering. They can't see Him as the ultimate promise by God. He's standing right in front of them. And they're confused. Now, at this point, if I'm talking to these people, or if you're talking to the the people here, what are we going to do? (laughs) We're going to throw up our hands and go, look, I can't help you. (laughs) You're, you're You're just too confused. All right, I'm I'm just I'm 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 out. I'm done, right? But not Jesus. He continues to speak to them. Because what he wants them to know is that salvation is found through him. Right? So that's our second point, salvation from Jesus. And the way that this is the way John constructs this and the way it happens is just it's it's incredible. So it brings us, it says in verse 37, to the last day of the feast, the great day. Now, one of the things about the Feast of Tabernacles was the the whole feast was one of celebration. They were celebrating God's deliverance from Egypt. They are celebrating God bringing them um, uh, through the desert. They are celebrating God's provision. And one of the ways that they are celebrating this is because it's a fall festival. They're celebrating bringing in the crops, right? God provided them in the wilderness. God provided them through the crops as well. And so a fall festival, and many of you know, right? Many, how many of you here know the celebration of what it's like when you finish bringing in the crops? I know many of you have experienced that. So everything about it is festive. And one of the ways that they celebrated this to help them remember, but also provide a festive attitude atmosphere was they would build a temporary shelter, either a booth or a tabernacle, either, either work. And during the time in Jerusalem, they would live in these shelters. Even if they lived in Jerusalem, they would still build a shelter. In fact, this celebration, this festival happened just a couple weeks ago. Um, and if you... Uh, you know, in New York, there's a large Hasidic Orthodox Jewish community. And what they will do is they will, their balconies of their apartments, they will go out and they will turn their balconies into these booths. They will eat in there. They will live in there. The kids probably sleep in there. Right? It, it, was, it, was, it was a festive atmosphere. And the festivities lasted for seven days. All right, And each of the day, there would be daily sacrifices and offerings. But throughout the whole time, it, it was just, they were, they were celebrating. But the last day, right, the, the, the last day of the celebration, as it is called here, the great day, it just, it, it, it goes to another level. Right? Here, here, I'll put it in, we're, we're not quite, to ACC basketball yet, but I'll put it in a context that we all know. You know, Duke winning the ACC championship is at one level. 
Duke winning the national championship is at another level, right? I know y'all are Carolina fans, but whatever. Yeah. But 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 you know what it's like, right? We, we see this. There's this building level. So when it comes to this feast, the seventh day, everything that they had been doing one time during the week was amplified to where they did it seven different times. All right? And one of the things that they did every day of the feast was something that's called a water ceremony. Now stick with me. We're going somewhere. I know this is a lot of detail, but we are getting somewhere. I absolutely promise you. So they had this water ceremony. So what would happen on this water ceremony is every day a procession of priests would descend from the temple. Okay, just remember, Jerusalem, everything in Jerusalem is up and the temple was on the highest hill. So when you left the temple, you automatically went down. So every day this procession of priests would would go out of the temple, go down to the pool of Siloam. They would get to the pool and the priests would take a gold pitcher and they would just they would dip it down into the pool and they would fill it. Okay? Now while they were doing this, there would be a chorus of people led by the priest and they would recite Isaiah 12:13. Isaiah 12:13 says, "With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation." So 6 days procession down, get the water, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. And then the priest would lead the procession back up to the temple. And as they're going up, there's trumpet blasts, there's people celebrating, they're, they're excited. And then the priest would enter the temple and they, they would surround the altar. And as they surround the altar, they would be, begin to chant the halal. Right? Halal is where we get hallelujah. And it's Psalms 113 through 118. And Psalm 113 starts off with, Praise Yahweh, praise those servants of Yahweh, praise the name of Yahweh. And then they would get to Psalm 118, which is called the Great Halal, the, 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 the most magnificent of the praise choruses that starts off, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And as this is counting, the, the people would take a bouquet of, of myrtle and willow trees that have been, or twigs that have been wrapped with palm, and, and they would hold them in their right hand and wave them, and in their left hand they would have like a branch of a citron uh, a tree, and, and they would wave that. And so, again, celebration. Celebrating God's deliverance. The priests are reciting Scripture. The people around are dancing, enjoying, waving their branches as a sign of praise to God. And they would cry out three times, give thanks to Yahweh, give thanks to Yahweh, give thanks to Yahweh. And then the water was taken and it was poured out on the rock of the altar before the people. So they could all see, but since it's the altar, it's pouring it out before the Lord. Six days. This happens one time a day. Day seven, the great day of the feast, they do it seven different times. The same structure every single time. And they do it for a reason. Because the water ceremony symbolized the provision of water in the desert. When you are living in a desert, when you are journeying through the desert, what is your greatest need? It is water. Trick question. What is not in the desert? Water. 
Right? So for you to have water, you, you are going to need that water to be miraculously provided. And in the Exodus, you got millions of people leaving Egypt, journeying through the desert. You, 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 right? We've all seen the Westerns, right? Just cut the cactus and drink the cactus juice water. Right? You're going to need a lot of cactuses if you got a million people. Absent a forest of cacti, you need a miraculous provision of water. Where is that water going to come from? Someone is going to have to supply the water. A few Bible verses for you this morning. And again, stay with me. We're getting somewhere. Exodus 17, verse 3, the people are grumbling. All right? Why? They're thirsty. Why? They're in a desert. Why? There's no water. They're grumbling. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Numbers 20, verse 2, They're grumbling. Why? There's no water. Why? They're in a desert. Verse 8, Take the staff and assemble the congregations, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and the cattle. You go to the book of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah is reading the law in verse 3 and the people are listening, he gets down to verse 19 and verse 20. He says, You, God, in Your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave Your good Spirit to instruct them and did not withhold Your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For forty years You sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Psalm 78, verse 15 he splits rocks. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Let me ask you something. Have any of you ever broke open a rock only to find water gushing from it? I'm just curious because all the rocks I know don't have water inside them. You go out and break up a rock, you get the inside of a rock. But for their wanderings in the desert, God miraculously provided water from a rock. Stuck in the desert, facing death, God miraculously reverses the threat of drought, disaster, and death. He provides for them salvation and He does it through the rock. And all these people are in the temple in Jerusalem watching this water ceremony reminded that God did this as they pour the water and the water trickles down out of the rock. They are reminded that God provided for their ancestors. But they're also reminded that God provides for them too, right? Because they still live in a desert. They, they still live in an arid place. And since this is in the fall, the rains have stopped. Right? Their ground now is starting to turn parched and started to have, have the cracks in it. So what they need 
in their lives right then as they are celebrating this festival is for God to come and pour out His water on them and nourish the land so that they will live and they will have salvation. And so part of the festival was a petition for God to send rain on the land. And if it happened to rain during the Feast of Tabernacles, can you then imagine the joy that they would feel? Because God right then is is sending rain on the land and they interpret it as a sign of God's abundant mercy being poured out on them. So all the people who are gathered who are in the temple, who are there on this last great day of the feast, beseeching God to send water for life, for for life saving, for for salvation, so that they can live in the land for six days. They have watched this for six days. They have said, with joy, you, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Repeat it over and over. They've sung the hymns. they sung the songs of God's salvation. They're celebrating His steadfast love. They're doing this over and over and over. And on the last day of the feast, where they have done it seven times, where they have watched the priest come and take the water from the pool of Siloam, to the altar which represents God and pour out the water on the rock of the altar to watch the water flow off the rock. Jesus stands up. Rabbis sat down when they talk, but Jesus stands up so everybody could see Him and everybody could hear Him. And He looks out on the crowd and He says... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What what did he just do? What did Jesus just claim when he did that? He just looked at the crowd and saying, you're worshiping God for the salvation that he sent your ancestors. You're worshiping God for the blessings that he, uh, praying for the blessings of water and rain so that you can live And he looks at the crowd and he says to the crowd, right now, in your presence, the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles stands before you. Chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the crowd and he says, y'all come to the temple, but I'm the temple. John chapter 6, he says, y'all are celebrating the Feast of the Passover, you're eating the bread, but I am the bread, I am the ultimate fulfillment. And in John chapter 7, He looks at them and He says, I am the water which provides the salvation that you need. I'm the one. Everything that you have been doing points towards Me. Not only, watch this, one gets better. Not only Does He tell them that, look, salvation is for Me. I am the one whose life-giving water flows from Me. And He's telling them, you know, I I, I am the rock. I can give you water because I am the rock from which the water flowed. Later, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4, listen to what Paul writes. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. 
And the rock was Christ. Jesus looks at them and says, in the desert, when you were thirsty, when you were going to die, when you needed water to live, I'm the one that gave it to you. I'm the one who gave you the water. And I'm here to give it to you now. So that you, you're stuck, you're dying in your sin, come to me and drink so that you may live. And look at what he says. He says, when you do, because did you notice all the verses that we read? Did, did the water just trickle out of the rock? There was a river gushing from the rock. Let's add that one to our DVD playback in heaven. Jesus says, look at what He says. He says, when you come to Me and when you drink, He says, out of His heart will flow rivers like living water. He says, I will give you a river. I will give you the living water just like I gave you in the desert because if you have living water, then you have sustained life. You will never thirst again because the water will never cease to flow. And the abundance of water and the abundance of life, he says, I give you will be so great that it actually will flow into you and then it will flow out of you as well. And it's another fulfillment of the feast. Because the feast not only looked backwards to what God did in the wilderness, it looked forward to the coming messianic age when God's Holy Spirit would be poured out on all the people. Because in the Old Testament, we would see the Holy Spirit kind of show up, reside on one person, and then leave, and pull up, and, or show up and reside on one person and leave. And so they look forward to the day when God's Holy Spirit was poured out on all the people. And Jesus looks at him and says, I'm the rock, come to me and thirst. And when you do, the waters will flow just like living waters through you. Because when you come and you drink from me, when you come and drink the living water that I'm going to provide, the fulfillment on the cross, when I am resurrected, when I ascend back to where you can't come, then I will send the Holy Spirit so that all who believe in me, the Holy Spirit will come upon them and will come upon you in such abundance you just you can't keep it inside. You become a conduit of the life-giving water. We're not the origin. It's, we don't. The, the, the life-giving water does not originate within us, and that's an important distinction. The life-giving water is a divine gift from God, but He gives it so much and in such an abundance, and at the same time, He wants to use us as believers to be a blessing to others through the outgoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus says to them, you're celebrating this feast and you're celebrating me. And you don't know it. And so He stands up to them and He declares it to them. If any of you are thirsty, come. Let Him come to me and drink and I will give you life-giving waters. And out of your heart will flow an abundance of water. And when he says that, you, you, you would like to see an invitation like at Billy Graham, right? Everybody just coming down out of the stadium, you know. It's not what happens. There's division. 
There's division because of Jesus. You look down to verse 40 through 52. They can't figure out who He is. They're stuck. Some say He's a prophet. Some say He's the priest. Some say He's this. Some say He's that. They want to arrest Him. Right? They look. Did you notice in verse 32 they sent out guards to arrest Him? But we don't see the guards again until verse 46. The guards come back to report. And the Pharisees look at the guards and said, we sent you to arrest Him. Why didn't you arrest Him? And they go, we have never heard anyone teach like this before. We've heard the other rabbis in the temple, but we have never heard anyone teach like Him. How did He teach? He taught like one who has authority. He taught as like one who was sent from God. He spoke as one who was the fulfillment of the feast, calling everyone to Him for salvation. And that message of repent and believe causes division. It caused division then. Some believed in Him in verse 31. Others did not. Right? The Pharisees mocked Nicodemus. Oh, are you from Galilee too? Do you believe in this this, this crazy prophet? But it's that claim that we have to deal with. They had to deal with it. We have to deal with it. Everyone has to deal with the claim of who is Jesus. And here He says to the Jews, I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the one who offers salvation, and it is only through me that you will have salvation. It's only found through Jesus. And that message causes division. Here's my Sunday school tie-in. Because we were talking about it in in Sunday school. People, you know, knowing enough about the Bible, but not really know enough. And they will say something that's, that's not true because it sounds good. The other day I was listening to the radio and a commercial came on for, I don't know, mattress, a pillow. I, I, I don't know what it was. It had something to do with sleep. That's all I remember. And the person who, who was selling this said, it's the closest thing to heaven on earth. So, um, that's not the theology I want to argue with. It's the next sentence that they made. Just throw it out there, right? Because they're selling, let's just say it's a mattress. They're selling a mattress and they're not really trying to promote theology. But the next sentence they, they throw out, it's, it's like, you know, closest thing you can get to heaven on earth. And one day when we're all in heaven. I mean, it sounds nice. As a believer, we all want that to be true, right? I mean, we want everybody to be in heaven. Let's, let's just let's be honest. We want everyone to be in heaven. We don't want anyone to go to hell. We want the gospel to to hear them. We want them to hear the gospel, impact their lives, and then transform them just like it did us. Sadly, though, the statement, once when we're all in heaven, is not theologically correct. Because the only way that you can get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And here he stands on the great day of the feast and issues the invitation that says, the salvation that you want is found through me. Come to me and drink. And it will be fulfilled. You will be saved. Again, this feast has huge overtones in in, in the Old Testament and the prophets. Jesus again fulfills it. He fulfills Isaiah 51, 1 through 55, 1, and then verses 6 through 7, where we're going to end this morning. Where the prophet Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And Jesus stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, come to the waters, come to me, and drink. And when you do, you will be safe. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.